I'm going to try to remember all of them. The first one we need to remember, announcement went out earlier. I'm not sure I got that. I didn't get that. Bryce isn't here. Uh, I'm not sure I'm getting the email prayer requests. No, there we go. It did come in. I just haven't been checking my email. Um, yeah, the, the situation with the Light in Action group down in Brazil, and we need to be in prayer for them. Great opportunity for them to be a witness, and usually the Lord brings uh, some really good things out of disasters like this, so this is a great opportunity for people probably to find out about who they are, what they're doing, and how they can uh, help them, but we need to be in prayer for their recovery. There are a lot of different ways in the devil's world that the devil is attacking. Also, we need a reminder about the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference, and there are uh, some significant things that are not happening. That we haven't had enough people sign up as volunteers, and this church has a reputation for providing a lot of cookies, not store-bought, at the conference, and we are sadly lacking. This is a spiritual crisis. We are sadly lacking in volunteers to bake cookies for the conference. So just a word to the wise. Okay, so we need some other areas as well, and there's sign-up sheets for volunteers out in the in the uh, fellowship hall. Also, uh, Daylight Savings Time begins the Sunday before, so get that in your head that we're going to lose an hour of sleep on the night of March 12th to 13th. And then we also need some men to help as as volunteers. Seems like there was something else of an announcement. Anybody think of what it was? What? Yeah, set up on Sunday, that March 13th. Jeff? Yeah. Yeah, Jeff got too close to Ted Cruz today when he went down to vote, and so he got filmed, you know, voting for Ted Cruz, so he'll probably be audited by the IRS within before the evening's out. What? Voting with him and for him. See, you know, you're in trouble now. Okay. We've got a lot to cover tonight, a relatively short chapter, but there's a lot of little interesting little side bits here and there as we get into this particular uh, chapter. So uh, we need to uh, prepare ourselves spiritually, which means we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are uh, in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need to be in prayer. Tonight's primary night that we all know about, and so we need to continue to pray for the direction of our nation, the provision of a leader, not one we deserve, but God needs to grace us out and to provide one we don't deserve, a good one. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your many blessings, the way you provide for us individually, the way you provide for uh, people in the congregation, the way you provide for uh, people in ministry, people serving you, that, that your work is sustained by your grace. And Father, we all were a bit shocked when we heard about what happened with the Light and Action people down in, down in Brazil, and they have a tremendous ministry there that's related to some really expensive high-tech equipment, which was... Uh, 
violently stolen from them the other day, and we pray for them. We pray that they might have a testimony uh, to those around them as they respond in grace to this situation, and that in your grace you will uh, provide for them the equipment and finances they need to be able to replace that equipment, especially since it's so much more expensive. We run into this in Ukraine and other third world countries that we really need to transport equipment from the U.S. in. Otherwise, it's just unbearably expensive. We look to your grace to provide for them. Father, we look to your grace again for this nation, that we would not receive a king like all the other nations, as Israel did in the time of Samuel, but that we would receive a a a leader who would be a true leader, who would understand biblical absolutes as well as constitutional absolutes, one that would stand in the gap and one that would lead this nation back to that framework which provided for which made this country prosperous, which built this nation, which made it the greatest nation on earth. And, and Father, we know that when we live in a culture that has rejected establishment principles, rejected biblical truth, that what we expect is an absolute disaster as we continue to slide down into the pit of, of uh, paganism and Christ-hating, Christian-hating uh, leaders. But, Father, we need a, a change, and we need to be able to continue to be a nation that is a light to the world, that continues to send out missionaries and continues to be a support to Israel. And, Father, we just put this election in your hands that we will have a strong leader that will begin to turn us back to a constitutional foundation. And Father, we pray for us tonight that we might come to understand the importance of a biblical foundation as we look at history and leadership and the kingship in Israel and uh, kingship, leadership everywhere through the lens of what is happening with, with Saul. And we pray that we might come to understand how you are working even through these events to teach us about your the fact that we are involved in a war and that there is an ultimate victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to First Samuel chapter eleven. First Samuel chapter I mean excuse me, first Samuel chapter twelve. I believe I think I put twelve. 11, rather. I put 12 in my notes. Chapter 11. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we're looking at an episode related to understanding the role of the Messiah as we see the battle between the snake and God's anointed. That may not be quite evident to you right at first, but that is what is going on here. This is foreshadowing the the war that ultimately occurs throughout history, which is the war that was announced at, at the very beginning of sin in Genesis chapter 3.15, that the seed of the woman would be at war with the seed of the serpent. And so this manifests itself numerous times throughout history, and it manifests itself in this particular event as we see Saul on the one hand as the anointed, the Mashiach, uh, the anointed of God, as the king of Israel, providing protection uh, in Israel against this assault, this incursion by this uh, wicked and violent king of, of Ammon. So just as a reminder, in the first seven chapters, we've seen God preparing the nation for a change. 
They did not deserve this change. Israel was like, is a picture of the believer in, um, in, in, in sin, spiritually dead, and yet God works in grace to provide a deliverance. We see it in, saw it in the small scale with Hannah and her dependence upon God, and he provided her with a son who would in turn be the one to bring about the Lord's anointed who would deliver them from their enemies. And at the end of that section, we saw that Israel rejected God as their king, rejected Samuel as their leader, rejected divine viewpoint, rejected biblical truth, and as a result, they turned away from God seeking a solution like everybody else. This is a problem we always have throughout history is people think that the solution isn't based on dependence upon God and God's word. But God's word is the only solution. God is the only deliverer. And so God is going to give a picture in this particular episode of how he delivers. This isn't the first picture. It's not the last picture. There were pictures again and again and again all through the period of the judges. And what we see time and time again is as soon as God uh, pulls their fat out of the fire, they reject God, they turn away from him, go back into idolatry. It is the nature of the rebellious human heart. It is deceptive and wicked above all things who can know it. And just a reminder in this presidential year, not to get your hopes up too high. I am convinced that we are living in a pagan world. This is the devil's world. This is a pagan, Christ-hating, Christian-hating culture. And many of the leaders do not have the have the uh, courage, the moral courage to take a stand against the assaults that are coming against the Judeo-Christian heritage. And I have little hope that we're going to see anyone good in the White House next year, and we may lose Congress as well to any any hope for the future. And I'm not predicting that. I I just look at the trends of the culture. And so I'm not getting my hopes up, and neither should you. We need to focus and triple down on building our defenses in our souls for what may come come to pass in this country. We have been on a spiritually regressive trajectory in this country for over 120 years since the fruits of 19th century religious liberalism began to be felt across all of the Christian denominations and Christian institutions and universities, and there have been a few places where the regress has slowed but it has not even gone level at any point, except maybe in the 1940s, maybe in the 30s and 40s. But it just retarded a little bit. So be warned. There's nothing that we can see related to this culture that there is a spiritual shift. And without a spiritual shift, this is what we see in Israel. Without a true turning back to God, there is no real solution. So what we see here in chapters 8 through 15 is that God is going to establish the office of king, and he's going to give the nation what they asked for, a king like every other nation, and he is going to be a disaster. And that's covered from 1 Samuel chapter 8 through 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35. And in this section, we see that God establishes the office of king, even though the people have asked for it for the wrong reason. It was in God's plan to give them a king, but he's going to teach them a lesson first of what happens when they 
get what they want instead of what God wants. And so he establishes the office of king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, 1 through 10, 16, God chose Saul as the first king, and he brought uh, Saul into position, into awareness with Samuel in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, and then he guided Samuel in the anointing of Saul in 9, 15, uh, to 10, 8. So we're in this uh, opening section here, the rise of Saul. It will come crashing down in chapter 15, and then God will provide a king after his own heart. That is King David, and we will see the rise of David in those last chapters from chapter 16 to 31. David is by no means perfect. The messianic human king is not a perfect king, but he is a king who seeks ultimately to do uh, to do God's <clears throat> God's will. Now the events in this chapter, and this is uh, uh, one map, take place here's Gilgal. We end up the chapter in chapter 11 at Gilgal. It starts off talking about uh, Nahash, the king of Ammon, attacking. Uh, Jabesh Gilead. Actually, he's probably been attacking uh, the Jews in the Transjordan area. That's the area across the Jordan, uh, east of the Jordan, all through uh, Gilead. Uh, and and uh, ultimately, he's now attacking Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is going to send out a message for rescue, and it's going to come to Saul down here in, in Gibeah. And then Saul is going to recruit an army, and they are going to attack, and they are going to defeat uh, the Ammonites uh, in this chapter. A lot of great lessons. And then they're going to go, go back and renew the covenant again, or <clears throat> at the end of the chapter, they're going to formally recognize, not renew the covenant, but formally recognize Saul as king before the Lord in verse 15 and they will make sacrifices there. So this is just another map to orient you geographically. This is Rabbah, the ancient name of this city, Rabbah, in, in Ammon. Today we know the city Rabbah as Amman in the country of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Okay? And so this is a, a historic conflict that we'll focus on as we go through the study. And Gibeah of Saul is about three or four miles north of the old city of Jerusalem. So today it's on the outskirts of the metropolitan sprawl uh, of, Jer- of Jerusalem. So that gives you a little bit uh, of an orientation. So uh, let's skip. We can skip that slide. As... Saul was being anointed. One of the signs was that, they, that I pointed out was that he would see a man that was coming who had was carrying three, uh, three, three goats. It's hard to carry three goats unless they're small. And so uh, I showed you a picture of uh, Danny Burrow's grandson when he had two, two goats and a larger one standing by. Well, now he's got four. If you can't see it, there's a dark one right here in the middle. So he's got. One, two, three, four goats. So for a man to be carrying three goats, they have to be small. Just thought I would help you to visualize what this would look like. Little kid carrying four kids. 
All right, now, as we get into this chapter, this is one of those significant turning points in Israel's history. It is uh, that we've seen at the end of the previous chapter, in chapter 10, when Samuel brought Saul before the people, he'd been hiding out in the baggage train and uh, didn't want to uh, attract any attention to himself. And in verse 24 of chapter 10, Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? And I pointed this out, that he is clearly the Lord's chosen one, even though he turns out to be a disaster. And here's the principle. Many times in life you will make a wise decision and you will make the right choice and it will be a disaster. And God is teaching you something through that. There are many times when people make decisions and they take a job or they uh, go to some college or they uh, uh, make any number of important decisions in life and then it turns out to be a disaster and they say, oh, must not have been God's will. How do you know? Sometimes God's will is for us to go through those difficult times so that we will learn something and he can produce something of value in the midst of what we think is something that's a disaster. And so God's will is not to be determined in this life on the basis of whether something turns out as well as we think it should or or not. And so this is what's happened. Uh, God's will is for Saul to be the king. And then in verse 25, we see a comment made that um, that Samuel then explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book. Now, we don't know what this was. It may have been part of Deuteronomy. It may have been an expansion of Deuteronomy. But he laid it up before the Lord, so it went into the... It went before the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle, uh, which was no longer located at Shiloh, but was located probably at Ramah or near there uh, at this particular time. And this has a, a parallel in that other documents that we know of are mentioned in the Old Testament that were laid up or deposited before the Lord. Moses wrote something called the Scroll of the Covenant, and this is uh, laid up before the Lord in Exodus 24-7. There's a scroll of the law. So this was probably a copy of the law that was put with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Deuteronomy 31-26, hence its name, Ark of the Covenant. And then Joshua put the a scroll of the law of God, also deposited that with the uh, Ark of the Covenant. The exact nature of those documents is not specified, but it would indicate that they all they mention the scroll of the covenant, the scroll of the law, that it's very likely a copy of the law or a copy of a portion, uh, a portion of the law. Now what we see at the end of that chapter is that Saul goes back home just to resume his life as a farmer. He doesn't take on a role. He doesn't seem to be concerned about leading the nation. He goes back into obscurity, which sort of reveals his, his, some of the flaw that he has. He's not really prepared to be a leader, and he really doesn't know what he's, what he's about. There are some uh, men of valor who go with him. Uh, notice, but they're following the leadership of the Lord because the text says at the end of verse 26, whose hearts God had touched. But there were some rebels also, some sons of Belial. 
some disobedient ones who had uh, were not accepting Saul as leader, and so they despise him in verse 27. They have an arrogance problem and an authority problem, but Saul doesn't do anything. He holds his peace. Now, I want to come back to that later because um, this may indicate something. He holds his peace. Is that because he's grace-oriented, or is that because he just doesn't know what to do? And I think that I think it's more of the latter than it is the former, because we don't see anything in Saul's character anywhere, in from chapter uh, <clears throat> chapter ten, all the way through chapter fifteen, to indicate that Saul has a really good grasp of grace, or a really good grasp of of uh, of, of any doctrine whatsoever. So. First Samuel 11.1 begins. We see a break in the action. Saul has gone back to Gibeah, and he's back there for a while. We don't know how much time went by, but it's a short time. It happens pretty rapidly, I think, um, because of some of the other... Uh, some of the other chronology in the passage. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. So one of the first questions that we need to address is, who in the world is Nahash, and who are the Ammonites? Now, Nahash is the Hebrew word for a snake or a serpent. Hence, my title, The the Snake Versus God's Anointed. This is a picture between God's anointed Saul and an attack on God's people by someone called the serpent. I think the scripture is foreshadowing the ultimate battle that will take place between Satan and God's anointed. And there is a pattern that we see set up in Samuel that that the Lord's the role of the king as just as today we get the principle, the role of the federal government is primarily to provide for the domestic and the domestic security of the people and the foreign security. We have to protect the borders. We have to protect private ownership of property. And if we do not protect the borders, which means shutting them down, and frankly, we've shut the borders down pretty well in this country in the 19th century and several times in the 20th century. In fact, there were times in several different presidential administrations, including the most recent in Eisenhower's administration, where all the undocumented or illegal aliens, which is still a good term, were rounded up and sent home. This is not against American values. This is the American value, to send people home to enforce the law of the land. What we have now in Congress and what we have in the White House are basically criminals because they are violating the law of the land and they are violating the Constitution and nobody seems to have the courage to call them on it or want to call them on it. And when you have a breakdown in the fourth divine institution or the fifth divine institution of nationalism, then what happens is you lose your identity and you will lose your possessions. It's the same thing that if you left your doors unlocked at night and you went away on a trip for two or three weeks, 
We did that one time in Connecticut. A lot of difference between Preston City, Connecticut at 65 Bunny Road and living in uh, Spring Branch or some other subdivision in Houston. We went to Kazakhstan, and we had a problem with our front door, and we took the front door off, and Dan Ingram was house-sitting for us at the time, and um, he had to leave for a couple of days and just left the house and put it in the Lord's hands, and everything was fine when he came home, but that was pretty much what you had to do. I remember one uh, one friend visited one time and walked through the park. I don't think you can do this now, but walked through the parking lot of the church and was pointing out to his wife that three out of four cars had the had the keys in the ignition. This was what fifteen years ago. That wouldn't happen uh, too many. That would happen in Houston forty years ago. If you leave your keys in the ignition, you're going to lose your car. So, but you have to protect your property. And if you left your doors open and you left the keys in your car in Houston, you're going to lose it. And the analogy is, if you do that as a nation, then you're going to lose the nation. You're going to lose your identity as a people. And this is what Saul is called upon to do, is to protect the integrity of the property that God gave to Israel. His role as the Messianic king is to defend the people of God, the citizens of of Israel. So the enemy is identified as, as the serpent, and he is an Ammonite. Now, we have to understand who, um, we'll come back to Nahash in a minute, but we have to understand who the Ammonites were. And we're introduced to the Ammonites in Genesis chapter 19. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, if you know your Bible, and most of you should, has some interesting stories. By the way, that reminds me of a phone call I had today. This was a great phone call. And this is really just a, 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 a great, um, a, just a great recognition of what takes place in the congregation here. And I don't, I, I know there are a lot of stories like this, but I don't get to hear them. And I had a pastor call me today who was pretty excited about something that happened last week. And, um, and he goes down, Pastor David Dunn over at Grace Bible Church, and he goes down, has a jail ministry. And he has worked with a number of guys from some of the other um, Bible churches in Houston. And he was down there. He's, David's done this for at least 10, maybe 15 years. And so he's working in Harris County Jail. And one of the uh, inmates down there that he's worked with for a number of years, he, he said, this is a great guy. Uh, he has, you know, he's obviously guilty of some crime because he's in jail. But uh, he said, but his background is such that he's, he, the only thing really wrong with him theologically or doctrinally is he doesn't believe in eternal security. But over the years, because he's been exposed to a lot of different uh, pastors and and men from some of the doctrinal churches here in Houston that have gone down there, he's really come to uh, focus on the doctrine of eternal security, even though he hasn't accepted it yet. And so the other day, David was there, and David said that, that you know, the inmates were there, they were having their Bible study, and and this guy raised an issue, issue, I guess it was a conversation, it wasn't in, in the middle of the class, and said, I, I, I can't understand. If you look at Matthew 5, Jesus says that if you have hate for your brother, that that's like, uh, that violates the commandment not to murder. And if you do that, then you will be guilty of, of uh, hellfire. 
And David, they were getting in, starting to have a conversation about this. And this young lady who is, works with the chaplain's office down there overheard the conversation and came over and said, well, one of the first things you have to understand is that the word there for hellfire is Gehenna. And this, to understand that, you have to go back to Jeremiah. And this is talking about the Valley of Hinnom. And this is where Israel burned their babies. And this is how they have to. And she went through the whole uh, doctrine of what Gehenna describes. And David's there with his mouth hanging open. <laughs> and he said, he turned to her and he said, I, I, I've never heard anybody able to articulate that so clearly. Where did you learn that? She, she, he said, where do you go to church? He said, I go to West Houston Bible Church. <laughs> and David said, well, of course. <laughs> and so um, this was Natasha who's been coming four months. And uh, she just joined the church last week. So she has uh, figured this out and is really studying it and has got this down. No, she's the one who sits down here. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, isn't that great? Just we are getting out there, and the truth is being taught as it goes out from the pulpit through different people in the congregation. So that's just a uh, just a great uh, a great story. Okay, so you guys should know Genesis 19 is a story of of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and of course the uh, family that's allowed to leave is Lot and his wife, who looks back and she gets turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot escapes with his two daughters, and we're told, if we look at uh, verse 30, then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. So he comes up out of the what is now the Dead Sea as a result of all that judgment. And his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and so they dwelt in a cave. They became cave dwellers. And to make a long story short, what basically happens is the two girls decide that they're never going to find a husband, and so they just get themselves and Lot just stinking drunk, so drunk that, that first one of them does it one night and uh, has intercourse with the father and then the other one the next night. And in verse 35 we read, Then they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger one arose and lay with him. He didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. That's pretty drunk. So both daughters of Lot were with child, verse 36. The firstborn, that is the older daughter, had a son named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. They dwell to the south east of the Dead Sea. And then the younger one also bore a son called his name Ben Ami, the son of my father. And his people are called the Ammonites. So they live just directly east of Jerusalem. Now the Ammonites are part of the predecessors who make up the modern, um, so-called Palestinian people. They're just Arabs. The only reason they're called Palestinians is by virtue of their birth. They happen to be there. But there's no historic Palestinian people. The name doesn't even derive uh, biblically. And most of the people who uh, found their way to, uh, to that area in the mid-19th century were brought in as migrant workers. There's a real lesson here about avoiding bringing in migrant workers. 
they are always going to be a problem. And so the Ottomans brought in these migrant workers from Serbia, from various areas in the Balkans, from Turkey, from Egypt, from all over. Some were Arab, some weren't. And they came in, so they have no historic ground, uh, historic basis in the land. They've only been there about 150 years. But part of that Arab mix that went, get, went into it would be the people who were the, uh, the Ammonites. Now, back when we studied Israel past, present, and future, I put this chart together to show that in the post-biblical period here, from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 until 1839, the, the land that God gave to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not an autonomous country. It was always part of a much larger empire. First you had the Romans, then the Byzantines, then the Persians, then the Muslim Arabs, then the Crusaders, then the Mamluks, and then the Ottoman Turks and the Ottoman Empire took control in 1517, even though uh, the Ottoman Empire went back to 1299. They didn't take control of the area of Jerusalem until 1517. What else happened in 1517? Pop quiz. What? Martin Luther, beginning of the Reformation. And so the Ottoman Turks ended in 1918, the Ottoman Empire broke apart. Now, when World War I, that happened as a result of the defeat of the Axis powers, they were allied with with um, with Germany. And when the when Germany and the Axis powers were defeated in World War One, what happens? The European allies and plus the U.S. come in, and after Europe has gone through this horrific war. Involving what? Prussia. Anybody see Prussia on their map today? No. But it involved the Prussians, it involved Poland and Hungary, Czech, all those Eastern European countries. What happened? At Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles, whenever a war ends, there's always a treaty, and part of what happens in the treaty is you get a real estate contract because you have to redraw all the borders. And ownership of land changes from, changes hands from country to country. And so part of the process was that they had all these committees and all these groups that was authorized to redraw the borders and the boundaries of, of Western, uh, Western and Eastern Europe. Boundaries shifted between Germany and France, between Germany and Poland, and all these countries, all those boundaries shifted. They didn't have time at the League of Nations, I mean, excuse me, at the, at the uh, Paris Accords, to redraw the Middle Eastern boundaries once this old man, that's what the Ottoman Empire was called, the old man of Europe, once it fell apart. So you've got all this land from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to what is now Israel, Lebanon, uh, Iran, excuse me, Iraq, not Iran, Iraq, uh, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, the Balkans, all of this was part of the Ottoman Empire. So they came back two years later in 1820, met at a place called San Remo, and the U.S. was an observer because they had rejected the League of Nations Treaty. And there they were, as part of the Paris Accords, they redrew the borders of the Middle East. Before 1920, you did not have Syria or Iraq or Jordan or Lebanon or Israel or Saudi Arabia or Egypt. These borders were not defined. They were defined legally 
at the at San Remo. And so the borders that we now have in the Middle East, even though they were done poorly, and it's because uh, Western powers don't understand the history of the Middle East, and it's just created lots of problems ever since, that's the legal document that gives all those nations ownership and established all of those borders. But part of it was that all of the land that's west of the Jordan River was given to Israel as their as a national homeland for the Jewish people. And it was held in trust by a mandate power and and Israel was held in trust by until there were enough people there to be self-ruling by the by by Britain. Syria and Lebanon was put under the uh, authority of France to govern them until they could govern themselves. That's what's important to understand. They, they weren't, it wasn't colonialism. That's what you will hear from everybody who's a liberal and an idiot and anti-Semitic. This was colonialism. It was not colonialism. But if you watch Lawrence of Arabia, you recognize that the British were, uh, seeking tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous alliance with the Arabs in order to defeat the Turks, and they had to make some bargains. Well, part of that was that they would give these some of these countries to Arab leaders. They originally gave uh, Syria uh, to the Hashemites, but the Syrians kicked them out, and so Britain was left in, uh, with with having to complete a promise to the Hashemites. In 1922, Winston Churchill, which was against what he really wanted to do, had to give the area across the Jordan, the area known as now known as also known as the Transjordan or the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, had to give that to the Hashemites, even though it was supposed to go to the Jews, uh, with the understanding that that would be for the quote Palestinian people, for the Palestinian Arabs. That was their national homeland. So you have a two-state solution. Jordan for the Palestinian Arabs, west of the Jordan for the Jews, for a national homeland for the Jewish people. But the Arabs didn't like that. They wanted all. And it goes back to episodes like this in uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 11. The, Ammoni- the Ammonites, the ancient uh, forerunners of the modern people, want to claim all of the land on both sides of the Jordan for themselves, and they were trying to capture this away from the Jews uh, from from uh, from time immemorial. But it wasn't given to them. They have no right to it, and it doesn't belong to them, and never will uh, belong to them. So you have the rise of uh, Nahash the Ammonite in the ancient world, and he is going to attempt to take all of the land across the Jordan away from those two and a half tribes that had settled on the on the east side of the Jordan. And Nahash the Ammonite is a uh, he's a type of Satan. He's a type of the the, the serpent in Revelation twelve nine we're told that the great dragon was cast out of heaven who is the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And so this is who Satan is. He is the serpent who is uh, uh, who is seeking to destroy God's people. And the one who stands in the gap 
is God's anointed, the Mashiach, and in this case it is Saul. So Nahash, Nahash is being used by the sovereignty of God to authenticate Saul because one thing that authenticates the Mashiach is he's going to go out and he is going to protect God's people and he is going to be the deliverer. And you see this with Saul, right after Saul is anointed, right after he is crowned king. The first thing that happens, he has to go out and protect God's people. What happens with David? 1 Samuel 16, David gets anointed. What happens in 1 Samuel 17? He's got to go protect the people from Goliath. This is the role of the Mashiach. And also tells us it's the role of, of the king and the role of government. So God is going to use uh, the serpent, the snake, to authenticate Saul, and he's also going to use him to provide uh, a picture of the ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So he invades. Now, as we look at this, a couple of other things I want to say about Nahash before I get into anything in detail in the text. As I pointed out already, the name means snake. Uh, we don't know if this was just a uh, a nickname that was given to him by the Jews because he was hostile to them, or if this was actually his his name, um, one of his many names. Uh, could have been a throne name, could have been a family name, could have been a nickname, but clearly he identified a specific person. What is uh, interesting here is that he is um, he's got a relationship to David. Now I've got my slides out of order, so I'm going to pause that thought, and we're going to come back to it. What happens at the beginning of, of chapter one, chapter eleven, and verse one, is that at Qumran there is a discovery of some additional material that is inserted between chapter 10 and chapter 11 that is not in the original. It's not in the Masoretic text. It's not in Hebrew documents, but it is in uh, the material at Qumran, and it's also attested by Josephus. Now, I don't think it's in the text, but it's interesting to know that, and there are some modern versions that are inserting this into their translation. The New Revised Standard Version does, the New English Bible does, and the New American Bible does. And this is how it reads. Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh-Gilead about a month later. And then it just continues with the text that we have. Now, that may be accurate. It does give some interesting background. But I'm not sure that we can say on the basis of this uh, of uh, manuscripts from Qumran and, and Josephus that this is uh, part of the original text. It certainly doesn't provide any doctrine or anything like that, So, but I think it's just uh, interesting to um, understand that. Now, as I was pointing out about Nahash, Nahash is an interesting character because he shows up in a couple of other passages in the Old Testament related to David, and he seems to have had a fairly close relationship with David. Uh, for example... 
In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2, we read, Then David said, now, now this is after David's king, and if you know your Old Testament, this is right between two key episodes in 2 Samuel. It's right between the giving of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and the affair with Bathsheba, uh, which comes up in uh, ch- uh, chapter t- 10. Chapter 9, I think. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. I, uh, excuse me, Second Samuel 11 is Bathsheba. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. Now, this sets up a conflict because uh, Hanun is going to treat them so despicably. He's going to shave their beards. He's going to treat them so despicably that it sets off a war between uh, Israel and and uh, Ammon. But the point is, David says, I will show kindness to Hanun as his father showed kindness to me. So this shows that David had a relationship with with uh, Nahash of, of kindness. Now, there's something else we learn about him. After that war was over with, after the affair with Bathsheba and all the uh, other things that went on in relation to that, we read in 2 Samuel 17.25, this is one of those little genealogical references that most people go over their eyes cross and glaze and they miss all this. Absalom made Amasa captain of his army instead of Joab. Joab had been David's general over the army. So this Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. Okay, so Joab's mother's name is Zariah. His aunt's name is Abigail. And so his aunt Abigail is the daughter of, of Nahash. Interesting. The plot thickens. In First Chronicles 2.13 and following, we have a genealogy listing David's family. David's father was Jesse. I cut out a lot of the text because you don't need... It lists all of his brothers. Jesse begot, lists all the brothers, and David. Verse 16 says, now they're sisters. Whose sisters? David's brothers and David, their sisters were Zariah and Abigail. And the sons of Zariah were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel. So Joab is one of David's uncles or nephews, rather. So his sisters, uh, Zariah and her son is Joab, so that's his nephew. This is a family affair, a lot like the disciples with Jesus. And Abigail bore Amasa, and the father of Amasa was Jether the Ishmaelites. Now, how do we reconcile uh, this information? Well, it looks like one of Abigail's parents was Nahash, so it's likely that that uh, that when Nahash dies... Her mother married Jesse, so she would be a half-sister of David. 
and um, so that that pulls the the uh, genealogy together. And what we see is four of David's top military officers were his nephews, and Amasa, who becomes Absalom's commander, is going to be is actually Absalom's cousin. So it is a real family breakdown. You think you have problems with your family at Christmas or Thanksgiving? They must have had a wonderful time. So this tells you a little bit about Nahash and how he how he fits into the scene. So in verse 2 we read, And Nahash the Ammonite answered them and said, On this condition I will make a covenant with you. See, they've, they've begged for a peace treaty. And he says, okay, I'm going to make a peace treaty with you, but as a condition, I'm going to put out the right eye of every one of, every one of you. And you will be a reproach to Israel. Now the reproach is because they've had their right eye put out. Now there are commentators who say these two separate things, but the reproach is that the men can't fight to protect their families and their homes anymore. Because in the way you, you you were involved in personal combat at that time, you would have a shield in your left arm. And you're looking around your shield with what? Your right eye. But if your right eye is put out, you're incapacitated. You've got to really show yourself in combat. So basically, it's a procedure to disarm the men so that they can't fight. Another thing that happens that also would uh, hinder their fighting ability is when you only have one eye, you lose depth perception. But if you put out both eyes, then they can't farm. And if they can't farm, you can't collect taxes. So it's a, it's a slick little maneuver to disarm your enemy in such a way that he can't fight you, but he can still work for you and produce, uh, produce taxes. So... Uh, this is this is how the pagans handled uh, disarmament when they defeated uh, people in the ancient world. So the response of the elders of Jabesh is, let's wait seven days. They're going to, long before Trump came along, they've got the art of the deal. Okay, we're going to negotiate. Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel and then if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now, the word for save is the Hithiel participle from Yasha, from which we get the name Joshua and Yeshua, to save or to deliver. And what's interesting here is that this language is language that we find all through the book of the Judges, and this is still the period of the Judges, where Israel sins, they come under a foreign power, the oppression of a foreign power, and they cry out to God to give them a savior, to give them a deliverer. We're reminded of Othniel, Ehud, Deborah and Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and even uh, even Samson. So they're looking for a deliverer. Well, who's going to be the deliverer? But God's anointed, God's Mashiach, that is his role. So we're told that the messengers came to uh, Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind from the herd of the, coming behind the herd from the field. So here's Saul and he's Farmer Brown. 
This is not a positive view of Saul at this point. He's been anointed king. It's chosen by God, but he's still out with the cows, and he's not accepting the responsibility of, of leadership. So this is another just a negative note. Uh, the writer here has some uh, really interesting um, ability to to just uh, to just suggest things by his use of image and his use of language. And so he comes out from the herd and he says, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of, of Jabesh. Now remember, there's been, a, there, there's been a, a connection between the Benjamite tribe, right? Because the Benjamites were so evil, they had a big battle, they had a big, big, big war, and the Benjamites were almost all killed, and, uh, and all the other tribes had sworn that their daughters wouldn't marry uh, the Benjamites, but there was one place who hadn't been there to enter into that oath, and that was where? Jabesh Gilead. And so this happened back in, in Judges uh, uh, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. And so the, the um, uh, it's very likely that Saul's mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, came from Jabesh Gilead. So there's this connection. Later on, when Saul gets killed at the battle of uh, Mount Gilboa, and then the uh, people of Beit Shan take his body and you know his decapitated body and hang it on the walls at at uh, at Beit Shan. Who comes in the dead of night to take his body and take it back and give it a proper burial? The men from Jabesh Gilead. So there's this connection going on uh, between the two. So he hears the words, and then we see the divine dynamic. The spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. Now, there's a temptation to read a cause-effect here. This is not a cause and effect. It is talking about two different things that happen. It's simply reporting this happened and then this happened, not saying that this happened as a result of the spirit, that the anger was a result of the Spirit of God coming. Just as Jephthah's vow to sacrifice whatever came out of the house to greet him when he came home wasn't the result, it was a bad vow, wasn't a result of the Spirit of God coming upon him. So we have to understand that when, when we have this, the, the Holy Spirit is just recording the series of events, not saying that one was connected to the other. So the verb there for coming upon is the Hebrew verb salak, which has this idea of rushing upon. So in our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we saw that this was used to describe the Holy Spirit coming upon Samson, the Holy Spirit coming upon Saul, and the Holy Spirit coming upon, upon David. And then what does, what does Saul do? Saul takes a yoke of oxen. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Takes a yoke of oxen. How many are a yoke of oxen? Two. And he cuts them up, each one into six pieces, and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. In other words, there's a, there's a, overt threat here that if you don't come out... Now, why does he have to do that? Well, because Israel hasn't had a great... The tribes haven't had a great history of responding uh, to this call to unite and go to battle. They had... Deborah and Barak had trouble with it. Gideon had trouble with it. 
Um, some of the others had trouble uniting the tribes, so he's he's coming out with a pretty strong threat to try to get them all to come out and to um, and to join them. Now, there's something else that happens here in relation to the Spirit of God. If any of you have really been paying attention, you will notice that there has been a shift in terminology. It's very subtle. I think this writer, I've gone through, I taught Samuel 30 years ago. I came to the conclusions that this writer is not only very subtle, he's very earthy. We'll see some of his earthiness later on. But there's a significant shift that takes place here. Instead of the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of the Lord, uh, he, the, the Holy Spirit is simply referred to as the spirit of God. Though both phrases refer to God the Holy Spirit, both of them refer to the third person of the Trinity. There, this subtle change in language is significant. There are five Israelites the, in the period of the judges, in the period from Genesis to Second Kings. There are five Israelites that are said to have benefited or to have the Holy Spirit of Yahweh come upon them. But the only other person from Genesis through 2 Kings, to have the Spirit of God come upon them is Balaam. And Balaam isn't a good guy. He doesn't have Israel's best interests in heart. In fact, he is used as a means of, of destroying Israel. And so there's a, there's a hint here in the language shift that, that, that it's like when you go to the movies. I went to see Star Wars the other night. And listen to the music. I mean, as soon as you hear certain notes, you know, where's Darth Vader? You hear a couple of other notes, and you're looking for Luke Skywalker. You know, it's subtle. But if you pay attention to these things, you listen to those notes and to certain uh, parts of the music, and it tells you who is showing up on the scene. That's what this is. This is just a, a very subtle hint that this isn't going to turn out well for Israel, okay? And Saul doesn't turn out well for Israel, okay? He's not saying it's not the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, but by calling it the Holy Spirit, of, the Spirit of Elohim instead of the Spirit of Yahweh, Yahweh is always associated with the covenant God and the blessing of the covenant God, well, not always with the blessing of the covenant God, but it's always a reminder of the covenant God. But Elohim is is a more of a generic term for God. And as I said, there's only two people from Genesis to Second Kings who have the spirit of Elohim come on them, and that's Balaam and Saul, neither of whom turn out well for Israel. Okay, moving on. So he gathers an army, they come together, and the children of Israel are 300,000, the men of Judah are 30,000. And so he's got 330,000. Now, there's always debate over the accuracy of the numbers here. And I think there are some places where there may be some corruption in the numbers. But if you remember when Israel entered into the land, how many were there? When they numbered them at the beginning of numbers, and they, they numbered the males of fighting age at... Um, in Numbers chapter 1, it comes out to a little over 600,000, and that's the Exodus generation. And then the conquest generation gets numbered again at the end of Numbers, and again, it's a little over 600,000. So here we have 330,000. So this is reasonable within the framework of the numbers that we have have in the Scripture for the size of their 
of their army. And so they come back and they go to the messengers go to the men at Jabesh Gilead and they're basically saying that uh, help is on the way. But uh, and um, and tomorrow by the time the sun is hot by noon you shall have help. So they reported this to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and then the men of Jabesh Gilead decide to use a little psych warfare with the with uh, the Ammonites. They're going to make them think that they're going to win. So they use the art of deception, which is always part of the art of the deal. They use the art of deception. They go out, and they're going to put them at ease and say, Tomorrow, the time's up, and you can do with us whatever you want to, just to sort of uh, put them off the game uh, to alleviate any suspicion on their parts. But what Saul does is he brings his people into battle, divides them up into three groups, and they're going to hit the Ammonites from three directions, which will produce a lot of confusion in the ranks, and they're going to defeat the Ammonites, and they are going to kill a huge number of them. Verse 12 to 15, we get the consequences. In verse 12... We turn back to Samuel here in verse 12. People come together, and the people say to Samuel, uh, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? That's a, an allusion back to showing how the chapters fit together, that there were these rebels who said, No, we're not going to let Saul rule over us. So they go to Samuel, who's part of what has been going on, even though he hasn't been mentioned, and they, they said, let's put those men to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. So it looks like Saul is saying the right thing. I don't think he's doing it for the right reasons. Is Saul a man of forgiveness and grace orientation? I don't see that in Saul's character. Up to, at any point in his life that he's got the level of spiritual maturity. But Samuel's there, and I think like any politician, he wants to impress people and do what may appear to be the right thing. He's doing a human good thing from a human viewpoint rationale. It may be the right thing, but I don't think he's doing it uh, from a divine good uh, rationale. That's not what he is, uh, what Saul is all about. So he just sounds like a lot of politicians who want to talk a good talk when it comes to God. Anybody recognize anything recently that's occurred like this? Mr. Trump saying that, um, you know, going to Liberty University and quoting two Corinthians. And then on another event, he said, I read my Bible more than anybody else reads their Bible. Really? Are you sure about that? That's a pretty extreme statement. He makes a lot of statements like that. I do this more than anybody else. Really? That's not only, that's beyond hyper, hyperbolic. So the people come together and they, instead of getting vengeance on these men who weren't ready to submit to Saul's leadership, Samuel says, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Now Gilgal's important. Because when Israel crossed over the Jordan, let me go back and get my map. When Israel came across the Jordan, the first thing they did was they stopped at Gilgal and they renewed the covenant and reaffirmed their role in the covenant. 
That is the second most significant thing that happens in regard to the covenant. The first is that it's given to them on Sinai. So the first significant thing that happens is God gives a covenant at Sinai. The second most significant thing is that they renew the covenant when the conquest generation crosses the Jordan and goes into the land. And the third thing is is that they're going to go there, and under Samuel's authority, they are going to... Uh, recognize that Saul is king and they are going to publicly accept this at this point and make sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord and then they are going to have a great celebration and a great party. Now one of the applications to come out of this is that we have to recognize that this is a picture of the battle between Jesus the Messiah and as the seed of the woman and the serpent who is the, I mean, the seed of the serpent who is Satan. And that this battle continues until Jesus returns and defeats the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet at the Battle of Armageddon and puts Satan into the abyss. One of the things we have to understand, and I'll come back and give you a little more on this next time, there's an order of events. There's the anointing by a prophet, Then there's the public recognition of that. Then there is a military victory over the enemies of Israel. And then there's the crowning of the king. That's the pattern that we see here with David and with Jesus. And so what happens is that Christ doesn't have the military victory over Satan until Armageddon. He defeats him initially at the cross, but it's not the to- not the end of Satan. Jesus isn't crowned when he goes to heaven. He's not the king until he returns. This idea in amillennialism and in progressive dispensationalism and in postmillennialism and in ninety percent of the uh, of the superficial, supercilious evangelical churches in this country that talk about Jesus being king now and sing chorus after chorus after chorus about worshiping the king now are out of line. It's not biblical. It is built on a false concept of the kingship of Christ and the whole battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Uh, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Jesus is going to come back and defeat Satan at Armageddon. He's only had one defeat. It's not total. That doesn't happen till Armageddon. And it is then that Jesus is publicly recognized by Israel as the king, as the son of David. But in this life, we always have to watch out for the tools that the seed of the serpent has. And I want to show you a little video. Now, this video is the voice of Donald Trump. This is not an endorsement of Donald Trump, but this was important because it points out the serpent. Some of you may have seen this, but I couldn't pass this up once I saw it. This is Trump reading a poem about the snake. And this is the modern form of this serpent. On our way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, 
a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-frozen snake. His pretty-colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Oh well, she cried, I'll take you in, and I'll take care of you. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, oh tender woman. Sighed the vicious snake. She wrapped him up cozy in a curvature of silk and then laid him by the fireside with some honey and some milk. Now she hurried home from work and that night, as soon as she arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken and revived. Take me in, O tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O tender woman. Sighed the vicious snake. Now she clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in, by now you might have died. She stroked his pretty skin, and then she kissed and held him tight. But instead of saying thank you, that snake gave her a vicious bite. Take me in, O tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed the vicious snake. I saved you, cried the woman, and you've bit me, heavens why. You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Sobering. That's the warning. If we don't recognize that Islam is the merchant of satanic evil and stop them when we can, then... The result is going to be they will destroy the West. But we're too blind and we're too full of our own arrogant arrogance. And the result is we're going to destroy ourselves. The only hope is the gospel and the enlightenment that comes with it, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you that we have your truth of your word that enlightens our souls that we can know truth from error and evil from righteousness. And, Father, throughout history there has been the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the only hope is to recognize that the seed of the woman provides redemption and provides hope and provides deliverance over all the machinations of the seed of the serpent. And as this country and many other countries face the rise and the onslaught of the satanic evil of Islam. We pray that you would open the eyes of our leaders that they may see the truth and protect us because we, like the men of Jabesh Gilead, need a deliverer, but one who will deliver us on the basis of truth, not on the basis of political subterfuge. And we pray that you would give us the courage to speak the truth and to be witnesses of the truth and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.